Chapter forty of Pushing to the Front by Horizon Sweat Martin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Luke Sartor. Chapter forty Work and Wait. What we do upon some great occasion will probably depend on what we already are, and what we are will be the result of previous years of self-discipline. H. P. Lydon I consider a human soul without education like marble in a quarry, which shows none of its inherent beauties until the skill of the polisher sketches out the colors, makes the surface shine, and discovers every ornamental cloud, spot, and vein that runs throughout the body of it. Addison Use your gifts faithfully, and they shall be enlarged. Practice what you know, and you shall attain to higher knowledge. Arnold Haste trips up its own heels, fetters and stops itself. Seneca the more you know, the more you can save yourself and that which belongs to you, and do more work with less effort. Charles Kingsley I was a mere cipher in that vast sea of human enterprise, said Henry Bessemer, speaking of his arrival in London in 1831. Although but eighteen years old, and without an acquaintance in the city, he soon made work for himself by inventing a process of copying bas-reliefs on cardboard. His method was so simple that one could learn in ten minutes how to make a die from an embossed stamp for a penny. Having ascertained later that in this way the raised stamps on all official papers in England could easily be forged he set to work and invented a perforated stamp which could not be forged nor removed from a document at the public stamp office he was told by the chief that the government was losing one hundred thousand pounds a year through the custom of removing stamps from old parchments and using them again the chief also fully appreciated the new danger of easy counterfeiting. So he offered Bessemer a definite sum for his process of perforation, or an office for life at eight hundred pounds a year. Bessemer chose the office, and hastened to tell the good news to a young woman with whom he had agreed to share his fortune. In explaining his invention, he told how it would prevent anyone from taking a valuable stamp from a document a hundred years old and using it a second time. Yes, said his betrothed, I understand that. But surely, if all stamps had a date put upon them, they could not at a future time be used without detection. This was a very short speech, and of no special importance if we omit a single word of four letters. 
but like the schoolboy's pins which saved the lives of thousands of people annually by not getting swallowed that little word by keeping out of the ponderous minds of the british revenue officers had for a long period saved the government the burden of caring for an additional income of one hundred thousand pounds a year and the same little word if published in its connection would render bessemer's perforation device of far less value than a last year's bird's nest he felt proud of the young woman's ingenuity and promptly suggested the improvement at the stamp office as a result his system of perforation was abandoned and he was deprived of his promised office the government coolly making use from that day to this without compensation of the idea conveyed by that little insignificant word so bessemer's financial prospects were not very encouraging but realizing that the best capital a young man can have is a capital wife he at once entered into a partnership which placed at his command the combined ideas of two very level heads the result after years of thought and experiment was the bessemer process of making steel cheaply which has revolutionized the iron industry throughout the world his method consists simply in forcing hot air from below into several tons of melted pig iron so as to produce intense combustion and then adding enough spiegel eisen looking-glass iron and ore rich in carbon to change the whole mass to steel he discovered this simple process only after trying in vain much more difficult and expensive methods all things come round to him who will but wait the great lack of the age is want of thoroughness how seldom you find a young man or woman who is willing to take time to prepare for his life work a little education is all they want a little smattering of books and then they are ready for business can't wait is characteristic of the century and is written on everything on commerce on schools on society on churches can't wait for a high school seminary or college the boy can't wait to become a youth nor the youth a man youth rush into business with no great reserve of education or drill of course they do poor feverish work and break down in middle life and many die of old age in the forties everybody is in a hurry buildings are rushed up so quickly that they will not stand and everything is made to sell not long ago a professor in one of our universities had a letter from a young woman in the west asking him if he did not think she could teach elocution if she could come to the university and take twelve lessons our young people of today are not willing to lay broad deep foundations the weary years in preparatory school and college dishearten them they only want a smattering of an education but as pope says 
A little learning is a dangerous thing. Drink deep, or taste not, the Pyrian spring. There shallow draughts intoxicate the brain, and drinking largely sobers us again. The shifts to cover up ignorance, and the constant trembling, lest some blunder should expose one's emptiness, are pitiable. Shortcuts and abridged methods are the demand of the hour. But the way to shorten the road to success is to take plenty of time to lay in your reserve power. Hard work, a definite aim, and faithfulness will shorten the way. Don't risk a life's superstructure upon a day's foundation. Patience is nature's motto. She works ages to bring a flower to perfection. What will she not do for the greatest of her creation? Ages and aeons are nothing to her. Out of them she has been carving her great statue, a perfect man. Johnson said, A man must turn over half a library to write one book. When an authoress told Wordsworth she had spent six hours on a poem, he replied that he would have spent six weeks. Think of Bishop Hall spending thirty years on one of his works. Owens was working on the commentary to the epistle to the Hebrews for twenty years. Moore spent several weeks on one of his musical stanzas, which reads as if it were a dash of genius. Carlyle wrote with the utmost difficulty, and never executed a page of his great histories, till he had consulted every known authority, so that every sentence is the quintessence of many books, the product of many hours of drudging research in the great libraries. Today, Sartor Rosatus is everywhere. You can get it for a mere trifle at almost any bookseller's, and hundreds of thousands of copies are scattered over the world. But when Carlyle brought it to London in 1851, it was refused almost contemptuously by three prominent publishers. At length he managed to get it into Fraser's Magazine, the editor of which conveyed to the author the pleasing information that his work had been received with unqualified disapprobation. Henry Ward Beecher sent half a dozen articles to the publisher of a religious paper to pay for his subscription, but they were respectfully declined. The publishers of the Atlantic Monthly returned Miss Alcott's manuscript, suggesting that she had better stick to teaching. One of the leading magazines ridiculed Tennyson's first poems, and consigned the young poet to temporary oblivion. Only one of Ralph Waldo Emerson's books had remunerative sale. Washington Irving was nearly seventy years old before the income from his books paid the expenses of his household.
In some respects, it is very unfortunate that the old system of binding boys out to a trade has been abandoned. Today, very few boys learn any trade. They pick up what they know as they go along, just as a student crams for a particular examination just to get through without any effort to see how much he may learn on any subject. Think of an American youth spending ten years with da Vinci on the model of an equestrian statue that he might master the anatomy of the horse. Most young American artists would expect in a quarter of that time to sculpture an Apollo Belvidere. A rich man asked Howard Burnett to do a little something for his album. Burnett complied and charged a thousand francs. But it took you only five minutes, objected the rich man. Yes, but it took me thirty years to learn how to do it in five minutes. What the age wants is men who have the nerve and the grit to work and wait, whether the world applaud or hiss. A mirabeau who can struggle on for forty years before he has a chance to show the world his vast reserve, destined to shake an empire. A farrago, a von Moltke, who have the persistence to work and wait for half a century for their first great opportunities. A grant, fighting on an heroic silence, when denounced by his brother generals and politicians everywhere. A Michelangelo, working seven long years, decorating the Sistine Chapel with his matchless creation and the Last Judgment, refusing all remuneration, therefore, lest his pencil might catch the taint of avarice. A Thurlow Weed, walking two miles through the snow with rags tied around his feet for shoes, to borrow the history of the French Revolution, and eagerly devouring it before the sap-bush fire. A Milton, elaborating Paradise Lost, in a world he could not see. A Thackeray, struggling on cheerfully after his vanity fair, was refused by a dozen publishers. A Balzac, toiling and waiting in a lonely garret. Men whom neither poverty, debt, nor hunger could discourage or intimidate, not daunted by privations, not hindered by discouragements. It wants men who can work and wait. When a young lawyer, Daniel Webster, once looked in vain through all the law libraries near him, and then ordered at an expense of fifty dollars the necessary books to obtain authorities and precedents in a case in which his client was a poor blacksmith. He won his case, but, on account of the poverty of his client, only charged fifteen dollars, thus losing heavily on the books bought, to say nothing of his time. Years after, as he was passing through New York City, 
he was consulted by Aaron Burr on an important but puzzling case, then pending before the Supreme Court. He saw in a moment that it was just like the blacksmith's case, an intricate question of title, which he had solved so thoroughly that it was to him now as simple as the multiplication table. Going back to the time of Charles II, he gave the law and precedence involved with such readiness and accuracy of sequence that Burr asked in great surprise if he had been consulted before in the case. Most certainly not, he replied. I never heard of your case till this evening. Very well, said Burr. Proceed. And, when he had finished, Webster received a fee that paid him liberally for all the time and trouble he had spent for his early client. Albert Beertstad first crossed the Rocky Mountains with a band of pioneers in 1859, making sketches for the paintings of western scenes for which he had become famous. As he followed the trail to Pike's Peak, he gazed in wonder upon the enormous herds of buffaloes which dotted the plains as far as the eye could reach, and thought of the time when they would have disappeared before the march of civilization. The thought haunted him, and found its final embodiment in The Last of the Buffaloes, in 1890. To perfect this great work, he had spent twenty years Everything which endures, which will stand the test of time, must have a deep, solid foundation. In Rome, the foundation is often the most expensive part of an edifice. So deep must they dig to build on the living rock. Fifty feet of Bunker Hill Monument is underground, unseen and unappreciated by those who tread about that historic shaft. But it is this foundation, apparently thrown away, which enables it to stand upright, true to the plumb line, through all the tempests that lash its granite sides. A large part of every successful life must be spent in laying foundation stones underground. Success is the child of drudgery, and perseverance, and depends upon knowing how long it takes to succeed. Endurance is a much better test of character than any one act of heroism, however noble. The pianist Thalberg said he never ventured to perform one of his celebrated pieces in public until he had played it at least fifteen hundred times. He laid no claim whatever to genius. He said it was all a question of hard work. The accomplishments of such industry, such perseverance, would put to shame many a man who claims genius. Before Edmund Keane would consent to appear in that character which he acted with such consummate skill the gentleman villain. 
he practiced constantly before a glass, studying expression for a year and a half. When he appeared upon the stage, Byron, who went with Moore to see him, said he never looked upon so fearful and wicked a face. As the great actor went on to delineate the terrible consequences of sin, Byron fainted. For years I was in my place of business by sunrise, said a wealthy banker, who had begun without a dollar. And often I did not leave it for fifteen or eighteen hours. Patience, it is said, changes the mulberry leaf to satin. The giant oak on the hillside was detained months or years in its upward growth, while its root took a great turn around some rock, in order to gain a hold by which the tree was anchored to withstand the storms of centuries. Da Vinci spent four years on the head of Mona Lisa, perhaps the most beautiful ever painted, but he left therein an artistic thought for all time. Said Captain Bingham, You can have no idea of the wonderful machine that the German army is, and how well it is prepared for war. A chart is made out which shows just what must be done in the case of wars with the different nations, and every officer's place in the scheme is laid out beforehand. There is a schedule of trains which will supersede all other schedules the moment war is declared, and this is so arranged that the commander of the army here could telegraph to any officer to take such a train and go to such a place at a moment's notice. A learned clergyman was thus accosted by an illiterate preacher who despised education. Sir, you have been to college, I presume? Yes, sir, was the reply. I am thankful, said the former, that the Lord opened my mouth without any learning. A similar event, retorted the clergyman, happened in Balaam's time. A young man just graduated told the president of Trinity College that he had completed his education and had come to say good-bye. Indeed, said the president, I have just begun my education. Many an extraordinary man has been made out of a very ordinary boy, but in order to accomplish this, we must begin with him while he is young. It is simply astonishing what training will do for a rough, uncouth, even dull lad, if he has good material in him, and comes under the tutelage of a skilled educator, before his habits become fixed or confirmed. Even a few weeks or months' drill of the rawest and roughest recruits in the late Civil War, so straightened and dignified, stooping and uncouth soldiers, and made them manly, erect, and courteous in their bearing, that their own friends scarcely knew them. If this change is so marked in the youth who has grown to maturity, what a miracle is possible 
in the lad who is taken early and put under a course of drill and systematic training, both physical, mental, and moral. How often a man who is in the penitentiary, in the poorhouse, or among the tramps, or living out a miserable existence in the slums of our cities, rough, slovenly, has slumbering within the rags possibilities which would have developed him into a magnificent man, an ornament to the human race, instead of a foul blot and ugly scar. Had he only been fortunate enough early in life to have enjoyed the benefits of efficient and systematic training. Laziness begins in cobwebs and ends in iron chains. Edison described his repeated efforts to make the phonograph reproduce an aspirated sound, and added, From eighteen to twenty hours a day, for the last seven months, I have worked on this single word, specia. I said into the phonograph, specia, specia, specia. But the instrument responded, Pacia, Pacia, Pacia. It was enough to drive one mad, but I held firm, and I have succeeded. The road to distinction must be paved with years of self-denial and hard work. Horace Mann, the great author of the common school system of Massachusetts, was a remarkable example of that pluck and patience which can work and wait. His only inheritance was poverty and hard work, but he had an unquenchable thirst for knowledge and a determination to get on in the world. He braided straw to earn money, to buy books, for which his soul thirsted. Gladstone was bound to win, although he had spent many years of preparation for his life work, in spite of the consciousness of marvellous natural endowments, which would have been deemed sufficient by many young men. Notwithstanding, he had gained the coveted prize of a seat in Parliament, yet he decided to make himself master of the situation, and amid all his public and private duties, he not only spent eleven terms more in the study of the law, but also studied Greek, constantly, and read every well-written book or paper he could obtain, so determined was he that his life should be rounded out to its fullest measure, and that his mind should have broad and liberal culture. Ali Bull said, If I practice one day, I can see the result. If I practice two days, my friends can see it. If I practice three days, the great public can see it. The habit of seizing every bit of knowledge, no matter how insignificant it may seem at the time, every opportunity, every occasion, and grinding them all up into experience, cannot be overestimated. You will find use for all of it. Webster once repeated with effect, an anecdote which he had heard fourteen years before, and which he had not thought of in the meantime. 
it exactly fitted the occasion. It is an ill mason that rejects any stone. Webster was once urged to speak on a subject of great importance, but refused, saying he was very busy and had no time to master the subject. But, replied his friend, a very few words from you would do much to awaken public attention to it. Webster replied, If there be so much weight in my words, it is because I do not allow myself to speak on any subject until my mind is imbued with it. On one occasion, Webster made a remarkable speech before the Phi Beta Kappa Society at Harvard, when a book was presented to him. But after he had gone, his impromptu speech, carefully written out, was found in the book which he had forgotten to take away. Demosthenes was once asked to speak on a great and sudden emergency, but replied, I am not prepared. In fact, it was thought by many that Demosthenes did not possess any genius whatever, because he never allowed himself to speak on any subject without thorough preparation. In any meeting or assembly, when called upon, he would never rise even to make remarks, it was said, without previously preparing himself. Alexander Hamilton said, Men give me credit for genius. All the genius I have lies just in this. When I have a subject in hand, I study it profoundly. Day and night it is before me. I explore it in all its bearings. My mind becomes pervaded with it. Then the effort which I make, the people are pleased to call the fruit of genius. It is the fruit of labor and thought. The law of labor is equally binding on genius and mediocrity. Nelaton, the great surgeon, said that if he had four minutes in which to perform an operation on which a life depended, he would take one minute to consider how best to do it. Many men, says Longfellow, do not allow their principles to take root, but pull them up every now and then, as children do flowers they have planted, to see if they are growing. We must not only work, but also wait. The spruce young spark, says Sizer, who thinks chiefly of his mustache and boots and shiny hat, of getting along nicely and easily during the day, and talking about the theatre, the opera, or a fast horse, ridiculing the faithful young fellow who came to learn the business and make a man of himself because he will not join in wasting his time in dissipation, will see the day, if his useless life is not earlier blasted by vicious indulgences, when he will be glad to accept a situation from the fellow clerk, whom he now ridicules and affects to despise, when the latter shall stand in the firm, dispensing benefits and acquiring fortune. 
I have been watching the careers of young men by the thousand in this busy city of New York for over thirty years, said Dr. Cuyler, and I find that the chief difference between the successful and the failures lies in the single element of staying power. Permanent success is oftener won by holding on than by sudden dash, however brilliant. The easily discouraged, who are pushed back by a straw, are all the time dropping to the rear, to perish, or to be carried along on the stretcher of charity. They who understand and practice Abraham Lincoln's homely maxim of pegging away have achieved the solidest success. The Duke of Wellington became so discouraged because he did not advance in the army that he applied for a much inferior position in the customs department, but was refused. Napoleon had applied for every vacant position for seven years before he was recognized, but meanwhile he studied with all his might, supplementing what was considered a thorough military education by researches and reflections which in later years enabled him easily to teach the art of war to veterans who had never dreamed of his novel combinations. Reserves which carry us through great emergencies are the result of long working and long waiting. Dr. Collier declares that reserves mean to a man also achievement. The power to do the grandest thing possible to your nature when you feel you must or some precious thing will be lost to do well always but best in the crisis on which all things turn to stand the strain of a long fight and still find you have something left and so to never know you are beaten because you never are beaten he only is independent in action, who has been earnest and thorough in preparation and self-culture. Not for school, but for life, we learn. And our habits of promptness, earnestness, and thoroughness, or of tardiness, fickleness, and superficiality, are the things acquired most readily and longest retained. To vary the language of another, the three great essentials to success in mental and physical labor are practice, patience, and perseverance. But the greatest of these is perseverance. Let us then be up and doing with a heart for any fate still achieving, still pursuing, learn to labor, and to wait. End of chapter 40 Work and Wait Recording by Luke Sartor, Brisbane, Queensland